Does anyone know who the most famous band from the year 1912 was? You probably haven't heard them on the radio or downloaded their latest tracks. Wallace Hartley, an English violinist and a devout Methodist, led this eight-piece band. Their big break didn't come on a world tour. It came with an opportunity to play aboard the maiden voyage of a giant cruise ship. This was the band on board the Titanic. Many of you know from Titanic the film or from general reading that Hartley's band continued to play when passengers discovered that the ship was sinking. And they didn't just play for a little while and seek safety on their own. They moved aboard the ship to continue to play as the boat was sinking further and further into the water. One survivor reported that he last saw them standing on the boat deck near the entrance of the grand staircase. And as the waters were rising on them, he heard Mr. Hartley said to his band, gentlemen, I bid you farewell. None of the band members survived the boat's sinking. One newspaper labeled the event in this way. The part played by the orchestra on board the Titanic in our last dreadful moments will rank among the noblest in the annals of heroism at sea. The legend of the band playing until this, the boat finally sank is pretty well confirmed. But what isn't that well confirmed is the last song that they played. Now, Hartley was supposedly known to say that if he was ever on board a sh sinking ship, that he would play Nearer My God to Thee. But the evidence from survivors seems to be more in favor of an Anglican hymn called Autumn. And the lyrics of that hymn are beautiful, and they're fitting for such a time that the band found themselves. Listen to the words. God of mercy and compassion, look with pity on my pain. Hear a mournful, broken spirit prostrate at thy feet complain. Many are my foes and mighty. Strength to conquer, I have none. Nothing can uphold my goings but thy blessed self alone. Savior, look on thy beloved. Triumph over all my foes. Turn to heavenly joy my mourning. Turn to gladness all my woes. Live or die or work or suffer. Let my weary soul abide in all changes whatsoever, sure and steadfast by thy side. When temptations fierce assault me, when my enemies I find, sin and guilt and death and Satan, all against my soul combined, hold me up in mighty waters, keep my eyes on things above, righteousness, divine atonement, peace, and everlasting love. Where we come to the Gospel of Mark today is a story of mighty waters. Jesus and his disciples are out on the sea, and it appears that their ship, too, is going down. But there's no music playing. The chief comforter aboard this vessel is not consoling his fellow passengers. No, he's asleep. 
but he's more than a comforter and a soother, admirable and brave as those may be. He is the Lord of the wind, Lord of the sea. And the same assurance that Christ had upon this boat appeared to belong also to Hartley and his men. So I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 4, where we'll read verses 35 to 41. You'll find that on page 839 in the Pew Bible. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke, and he rebuked the sea, and said, he rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear, and said to one another, Who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. The main point of this passage is simple. Jesus is Lord, do not fear. Jesus is Lord, do not fear. While it may be a simple statement, it is not a shallow truth. That even here, we are able to join in the task of the Apostle Paul, where he says in Ephesians 3.8, that we examine and preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. And if you've been with us through Mark's gospel, you'll have noticed that Mark uses modest but clear and powerful patterns. Much of what he has covered so far is an answer to the question posed by the disciples here in this passage, verse 41. Who then is this Jesus? At each turn in the book, Mark reveals the identity of Jesus. And he reveals it with an emphasis on what discipleship to Jesus actually means. So week after week, we've seen clear presentations of Jesus, which are followed by both good and bad responses to him. So last week, in Mark chapter 4, verses 21 to 32, we examine three of Jesus' parables that describe the nature of the kingdom that Jesus brings. So when viewing these parables as a whole, we observe that God will give the growth to his kingdom and that God will get the glory in his kingdom and he calls the citizens of his kingdom to faithfully serve by sowing the seeds of the gospel and resting and trusting that God will give the growth. This week, we're going to see that the king himself displays proper kingdom living. While his disciples still have much to learn, 
we'll observe two movements in this story. Two movements that relate to Jesus' identity and proper discipleship to him. You'll see them printed in your bulletin. Jesus is human, and the disciples are frustrated. Jesus is divine, and the disciples are fearful. Let's begin first. Jesus is human, and the disciples are frustrated. We're giving the lay of the land a little bit here. Jesus had just finished an entire day of preaching and teaching. And he's teaching to large crowds. And now he wants to pick up and go somewhere else. And it's been a while since we emphasized this. But we remember that Jesus' earthly ministry was not primarily about miracles and healing. Though it did have miracles and healing. Jesus' earthly ministry was primarily about preaching the gospel. So we're reminded here of what he said to them in chapter 1, verse 37. Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. So it's here. Jesus is tired, but he's steadfast. And he says, let us go to the other side. And the other side would be the Gentile regions of the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus leaves the crowds, and he goes to the other side. He isn't interested in drawing large crowds. He's interested in continuing his mission. And just like with us, when we begin to follow Christ, our mission can't be about multiplying our fame. It can't be about seeking to do anything and everything to maximize our personal happiness. Now, when we start following Christ, our mission is about bringing glory to Christ. And friends, Jesus reassures us that is the way of joy. That is the way of rest. So we follow our Lord and say we must go on and continue in our mission. So pick back up, middle of verse 36. Jesus gives the charge to leave and the disciples follow through. Remember, Jesus has been teaching in a boat, and likely this is the boat of Peter and Andrew, right? Experienced fishermen on that very sea of Galilee. And he stays in this boat, and he heads to the next destination of his journey. Mark says that he left just as he was. Kind of a curious statement there. It likely means that Jesus didn't even get out of the boat before he had left. He just stayed in it, and then they took off. and a discovery of a first-century Galilean fishing boat. It discovered in 1986. It shows that typical boats back then were 27 feet long, about seven and a half feet wide, and four feet deep, and had an elevated stern that was covered, and this is where Jesus would have been. And the boat as a whole held about 15 people. So Jesus is adamant about continuing his mission. He stays in that boat the whole time, tired, but he's steadfast. But it's not just him that sets out for the other side. Mark tells us that there were other boats with him. And who knows whether or not these people could have seen a storm coming that evening. But to all of his followers, Jesus makes it clear 
that there will be storms. That there will be storms, but we continue to follow because we trust that he will get us safely to the other shore. We continue to follow because we trust and we love him. Friends, who else is like the Lord? Who else would we follow? There will be storms, friends, and we all face sufferings. That's, that's undeniable. But I wonder, I wonder if on our own we naturally avoid storms. What do I mean? I wonder that if on our own we naturally avoid doing the hard things for Christ. Friends, do you trust that he will never leave you or forsake you? Do you trust that his work for salvation, for your salvation, is finished? Could you do the hard things for Christ? Think about all those objections going in your head right now. Could Jesus overcome all those objections? Oh, yes, friends. So then what's keeping us from taking risks for him? What's keeping us from following him into those hard storms? We're secure. So take up your oars and follow hard. So this is just the setting of, what, of the main action that's about to take place. You know, things turn up to 10 when the storm finally comes. You've got to remember that Jesus is on board with experienced fishermen, who know this sea. In fact, these fishermen have known the Sea of Galilee since they were little boys. So these men would know what a good old-fashioned Galilean windstorm was like. You see, the Sea of Galilee is 900 feet below sea level. And it's not just that. It's surrounded by hills and mountains. And to add to that, 30 miles away from the Sea of Galilee is Mount Hermon, That's 9,000 feet above sea level. It's incredible how diverse the topography of Israel is. 30 miles away, 9,000 feet above. So you got cold air coming in, warm air going out, and it just swirls all the time. So there are great windstorms, and this was no exception here. Mark says that this was a great windstorm. That could also be translated as hurricane. Hurricane-like winds, a hurricane-like storm. Have you ever slept through a hurricane? What's Jesus doing this whole time this is going on? He's sleeping. Now, he works hard, but he slept hard. Or maybe that's a pattern for us. I don't know if you know any heavy sleepers. I've had a few roommates from college who fit the bill. I've had one roommate who could sleep through consecutive hours of alarms, constant alarms, including an alarm that's just a shotgun sound going off. I've had another roommate who's literally fallen asleep while he's holding his iPad laying down and looking at it on the bed. Fast asleep, couldn't wake him up. But here... Jesus is sleeping through a storm of hurricane winds. And it's not just that. It says that the boat is already filling up with water. 
You talk about a heavy sleeper. Well, what does this show about the Lord? First, it shows that Jesus became truly human. Jesus became truly human. He got tired. And you know what the ironic thing is? The only time the gospel writers record him sleeping is during a storm. Jesus took on human nature. Human nature that was preserved from original sin because of the virgin birth. This means that Jesus did not inherit Adam's guilt and Jesus did not inherit a desire for sin. However, Jesus did submit himself to human limitations. We see here he got tired. And we see in other places he experiences hunger and grief and physical pain. Jesus' full humanity, that Jesus became truly human, means that he can identify with his people, not just out of intellectual knowledge, but out of actual experience. The fact that Jesus became truly human means that he has an opportunity to be the new Adam. To be the new Adam. You see, before we're in Christ, we are in Adam. Adam stands as our representative. But although Jesus is fully human, he is unlike Adam is that he is without sin. He can be our full representative, and he is the perfect representative. Paul picks this up in Romans chapter 5. He says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Jesus became truly human. We see that, that he's a heavy sleeper. Jesus sleeping through a storm shows us that he trusted the Father's sovereign will. He's like the good farmer we saw last week. Faithfully works, faithfully sows the seed of the gospel, and then what does he do? He goes to sleep. In the Psalms, it says that God gives to his beloved sleep. And sometimes sleep indicates trust. It's fitting that we're at this point because while Jesus shows his perfect humanity, his disciples are showing their far from perfect humanity. They approach Jesus in a panic. And if it were me, I would be right there with them, especially as a kid. I hated being on the water. Even on a, a, a gentle stream, on a canoe, any little rock of the boat, and I was anxious and panicked. But these guys are used to being on the water. These guys have been on the water their entire lives. And they come to Jesus in a panic saying, we are literally about to die. And it was probably an accurate assessment. And their knowledge emboldens them to the point where they can be condescending even with the Lord. Did you not even care? How do we evaluate their question to Jesus? Now, we can all get frustrated with passivity. That's what they thought Jesus was here. They thought he was passive. They didn't really think he cared. 
Man, passivity is frustrating, especially in desperate moments. We see people are passive. Even in things that don't even matter, it gets frustrating. Now, how many times has it been frustrating where you're trying to decide where to go to eat, and they just say, well, I don't care. <laughs> that gets old real fast. Passivity. So in one sense, the disciples come in here, their questions and response to this situation is kind of reasonable. It's a good instinct to turn to the Lord if you think you're about to die. Y'all, that's a good instinct. And every one of us in this room has the common denominator of death and mortality. Every one of us in this room. You've got to ask yourself, have you recognized that? And where will you turn in light of that reality? Are you going to turn to yourself? Or are you going to turn to the Lord? But it doesn't matter that the disciples merely turn to the Lord while facing death. It matters how they turn to the Lord. So in describing the nature of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, it says that true faith is believing that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him. What does that mean? It means that it doesn't matter just that we believe in Jesus. It matters what you believe about Jesus. You see, the disciples were mistaken. Of course Jesus cared. Of course Jesus was in control. Instead of turning to the Lord in condescension, they should have turned to the Lord and said, Teacher, this is going on, and we don't know what to do. Please help us. And we will not come to Jesus in this way until we know we are unable to save ourselves. We will not come to Jesus in this way until while we, we know that while we are unable to save ourselves, that Jesus is mighty to save. So we see here in the disciples that the real test of faith is not so much intellectual doubts, though those are maybe real. The real test of faith is how easily we're thrown into a panic. And I don't know about you, but it takes a lot less than a life-threatening situation to throw me into a panic to throw me into worry. Now make no mistake about it. The Bible carves out space for what it calls crying out to the Lord. Carves out space for saying, this awful thing is happening and I don't know what to do. We don't know every reason why God allows those awful things those awful storms to happen. But we know that if we allow him, just like Jesus is going to do here, God will strengthen our faith in him as a result of those storms. So, this is what I'm saying. This is not a hakuna matata philosophy. This is not a no worries, problem-free philosophy, as great as the song is. 
This is what the Bible calls making our complaint known to the Lord. But doing it in a way that places our complaint, our concern in his hands because we know and we trust that he cares and that he's in control. Making our complaint in such a way that we know that he cares and that he is in control. Jesus is Lord, do not fear. A second movement in this story. Jesus is divine and the disciples are fearful. So can you notice the humility of the Lord in this situation? He doesn't snap back at the disciples. And keep in mind, this isn't a low-stress situation either. you got a torrential storm going on. He's been sleeping. He just got up, and the disciples are in his face. It's a reminder to us, friends, that a fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives is self-control. Self-control. There's a reason why the book of James says to be slow to speak. How liable are we to fly off the cuff in a situation when someone accuses us and we know that we are actually right? How quick are we to protect our personal reputation? Our Lord doesn't act in that way. And we do well to ask for his help in following him in that regard. Remember grace. Remember grace. Grace means you are accepted by God in Christ. And that means you don't have to worry about maintaining your personal reputation. Your personal reputation is secure because when the Father sees you, he sees Jesus if you are in him, if you trust in him alone. Though Jesus doesn't speak back to them. Rather, he speaks to the wind and the sea. More specifically, you see in verse 39, that he rebuked the wind. This is the same word to describe what Jesus did to the demons who were harming people. He rebuked them. Then he tells the sea, literally, to be still and stay still. At this moment, these forces, the wind and the sea, were prohibiting Jesus' mission. We're prohibiting him from continuing on to the other side to continue to preach the gospel even to the Gentile regions. And Jesus vanquishes these forces. He does it by speaking. Earlier, earlier we read of Jonah. And if you're familiar with any minor prophet in the Old Testament, it's probably Jonah. Remember that Jonah was sent to Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, an evil city filled with evil people. And Jonah doesn't want to go. He flees the Lord's calling by going in the complete opposite direction. But he quickly realizes that you can't outrun the God of the universe. God sends a storm. 
And while Jonah is on a ship with men from foreign lands who worship foreign gods, he tells them that Yahweh, the God of the earth, including the land and the sea, has sent the storm because of him. And so the men eventually, unlike Jonah, who's supposed to be a worshiper of God, they stop praying to their false gods and they start praying to the actual God. They pray to the Lord to calm the storm. And though reluctant, they knew that God would calm the storm if they threw Jonah into the sea. So you notice the difference here. The difference between how the storm is calmed in Jonah versus how the storm is calmed here in Mark 4. We get a hint at another time. Jesus says of himself that something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus doesn't pray to God the Father to end the storm. No, Jesus does it himself. You don't read those final words of verse 39 too quickly. The wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He speaks, and what was like a hurricane reduces to nothing in an instant. And imagine that for a moment. Now, we know what drastic weather change is like in a matter of a short period of time, especially here. I don't think we know anything like this. The worst thunderstorm you've ever seen one moment. Nothing the next. What does this show us? What does Jesus himself calming the storm show us? It shows us that Jesus can do only what God can do. Psalm 107 describes God doing this very same thing, making the storm still. And Jesus does that same thing. Friends, if Jesus cannot do what only God can do, then Jesus cannot save us from our sins. If Jesus cannot do what only God can do, then Jesus cannot save us from our sins. If Jesus is not divine, if he is not God in himself, then he cannot bear the punishment for our sins. He can't do it. If Jesus is not divine, then he is unworthy of our worship. And we're wasting our time. But we find time and again that men fall at his feet. And whereas they do the same things with angels, angels who are glorious, when they do the same things with angels, angels correct them. They say, don't do that. When they fall at the feet of Jesus, Jesus does not correct them because Jesus is divine. He is God in himself. He is the second person of the Trinity, God the Son incarnate. God the Son who took on human nature, who became man so that he is truly man and truly God, the perfect representative who is able to bear the punishment of our sins. That's what we see here. Jesus can do only what God can do. If you know what a mic drop is, you know, you, you finish talking, you make a really good point, and you... Jackson's doing it. You just drop the mic like that. 
It's not as hip if you have to explain it. Um, <laughs> but if you know what a mic drop is, you know that for Jesus, this is a tailor-made mic drop moment. Disciples come and question him, do you even care? And Jesus says, wind, be still. Sea, be still. And they're still. He turns the tables on the disciples, but not in a gloating in your face kind of way. They questioned his care and even who he was, what he could do about the situation. And Jesus shows up big time. And now the storm is calm, but that didn't calm the disciples. In the presence of God the Son, they are even more fearful than in the presence of a hurricane-like storm. So in this current climate of Christianity, we're losing that a little bit. We're losing a little bit of that reverence and awe and soberness when it comes to approaching God. We have to be careful not to mix God with gushy pop songs that just happen to have the word Jesus in them. Yes, Jesus is our friend. But Jesus is also the Lord of glory. It's like how C.S. Lewis describes Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia. You may be familiar with this. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. When we look at the disciples' reaction of fear, Mark says here, literally, they feared a great fear. We can affirm again that there's something right about that instinct. The Bible says that God is a consuming fire, that he is so radiant and pure and powerful and holy that when men catch even a small awareness of him, that they fear because they are the exact opposite. And that's what takes place here. But Jesus didn't calm the storm just to scare them. Jesus calmed the storm to increase their faith. Remember, that's what Jesus promised to do for them. To those who believe in him, he will continue to reveal himself to them. So in calming the storm, Jesus reveals more of his identity. And the disciples begin to pick that up in verse 41. They ask, who is then this Jesus he is the one who can do only what God can do. And he is the one who cares. Jesus asked them if they still had no faith. Faith in Jesus is the confidence that he is the one who has the power and he is the one who cares for us. Oh, he is powerful. He's not safe, but he is good. Jesus proves he is worthy of this confidence, of this faith, not just at this storm, but also at another storm. This also was a storm into which he willingly went, 
allowing men to take him just as he was. This was a storm of an unjust trial, a storm of beatings, mocking, and lashes. This was the storm of God's wrath for the sin of everyone who would ever believe in Jesus. This storm he went through alone so that we wouldn't have to. And this storm he allowed to endure until it was finished. And the storm clouds of Golgotha give way to the bright sun of the empty tomb. Friends, Jesus is the risen Lord who calmed storms and later endured the storm for us. Do not fear, but believe that this is the one who cares for you. This one who is powerful is also good. Do not fear. Let's pray. Lord, would you increase our faith that through many trials and temptations and storms have we come, but you keep us. So Lord, keep our confidence in you. Keep our confidence that you are in control and that you care. Jesus, help us to hang on to the finished work of salvation. And Lord, help us not to fear. We owe this to you, to your grace. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.